If your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Adam, and my wife is Lindsay. She plays guitar here, often leads worship. And uh, this morning we're going to, I'm excited and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to share uh, what I've been learning the past few weeks in Ephesians in my own study and as we've looked at it as a church, and then also what God's been doing in my life the past several years in regards to how I view Scripture as a whole. Uh, And so I'm looking forward to sharing it. Um, Bear with me if you've never heard me speak before. I'm a little bit of a nerd and a geek sometimes, so just follow along. Um, But I want to, don't have a whole lot else as far as uh, illustrations or introductions. We have a lot to go through, so I'd like us just to dive right in. So as as you know, right now we're in Ephesians chapter 3. And we've been uh, in Ephesians for a while now as a church. Uh, We're looking at the last few verses of the chapter. Um, uh, it'll be verse, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> but the Ephesians itself as a book is really two halves. So we are finishing up the first half. Uh, the first half is really focused on doctrine. Um, and then uh, we're finishing it up today. And then the hinge is going to turn. And then next week we start the second half. So the, these few verses that we're going to look at today are really a a summary or a conclusion statement of that whole first half. So before we get into it, I want to take a minute and let's talk a little more broadly about the book and about this first half um, to make sure we're all on the same page with where we're going. So I'll start from the beginning. Ephesians was written by, anybody? Paul, right. And Ephesians was written to? Church of Ephesus. Now, that was a little bit of a trick question because um, although most of Paul's letters are written to specific churches or specific people for specific reasons, Ephesians is unique. Uh, Although it has the name Ephesians, it's really written to all of the churches of Greece at the time, all of the new converted churches or the new non-Jewish churches. And, uh, And it's not a letter written for a specific reason. It's really what's called a circular letter. It's written in a way to be passed around from church to church for everyone to read. So it's, instead of calling it a letter, it's more like a research paper. So this is Paul's research paper that he wrote for the purpose of being passed around to all the new churches of non-Jews in Greece. Okay, so this was written by Paul, who's a Jew, and it's sent to churches of non-Jews. So why, why is he writing a research paper? What's important about it? Well, Paul represents everything Jewish, right? He was a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew all the Jewish laws, traditions, ceremonies, holidays. He knew the four or 5,000 years of Jewish history. He knew the Torah. He probably had it memorized, Right? And then God gave him the unique instruction or commission to go to the non-Jewish churches. So there's something that Paul knows or experiences that he wanted these new non-Jewish churches to know and understand. And I think it's a lot what he's really focusing on, because it's all through Ephesians, especially the the verse we're looking at today. It's all about the love of God. How big or how deep is the love of God? And Paul wants uh, these non-Jewish churches to see it from his perspective, from a Jewish perspective. So as we've talked about, the first half is more about doctrine, 
um, the first half of this research paper, it's more like an owner's manual. And then the second half is application, and that's more like the operating instructions. So we, we're finishing up the owner's manual section of Paul's research paper that he wrote to the non-Jewish churches to see, to read. And I think, in my opinion, the, the, his thesis here, what Paul's going for, I'm convinced that in Paul's mind, our salvation is far bigger than a get-out-of-jail-free card. God's love for us is really an epic tale played out over the past 5,000 years of Jewish history, written about from cover to cover of the Bible. And I think that's what Paul's trying to get across here. Paul's a very passionate character, an individual, and he's trying to get his passion across. So as we look at it this morning, I want us to think about what, why is he so passionate about God's love? So as I'm not, I do not come from a Jewish family, so I'm not Jewish. But for, for us as non-Jews, what is it that we need to know about the love of God? So everything we go through this morning, I want us to think through that lens. As non-Jews, what is it that we need to know about the love of God? So if you, um, if you still have your finger in Ephesians 3, uh, I want to, I'd like us to read the passage. And if you could stand with me, uh, out of respect for God's word, word, I will read it and just follow along. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, I uh, pray this morning as we have an opportunity as um, a family, as your family, to, to look at your word and to spend time in Ephesians and to, to try and unpack what this passion is that Paul has that he want, he's trying to share with these Gentiles. Help us to understand. Uh, help us to get a better picture uh, of your love for us. Open our eyes and open our hearts. And I ask that the Holy Spirit would, would speak through me to each one of us. Teach us what you'd have us to learn this morning. Help me to not get in the way or mess anything up. And I ask this morning, God, that you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable only to you. For you, God, are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we talked about, we want, as we look this morning at this passage and as the whole Bible, we want to think through the lens of what is it as non-Jews that we need to know about the love of God. So, so I, I've talked a lot about Paul's Jewish past and the fact that he's intimately connected to the 5,000 years of Jewish history. And that's what's going into uh, why he's writing to uh, all the non-Jewish churches. So before we actually get into verse 14 of Ephesians, uh, I want to do something a little different. So, so bear with me on this. 
um, I'd like us to actually take some time and think through the 5,000 years of Jewish history. I want us to do a 30,000-foot level flyover of the whole Bible. Now, I know that sounds like a huge task, but I've been practicing it, so I think we'll be okay. Um, but I think it's important and to understand what, what is it that's so important about this? Why is Paul so passionate? Okay, So we're going to start on the first page. Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth, right? Through the power of God, he created everything out of nothing. And then he, he created the plants and the animals, and then he went on to create humanity, male and female, Adam and Eve. And he, he dwelled with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They walked beside each other uh, in the cool of the day. They had this intimate relationship and connection. And then at, the, at their sin, at Adam and Eve's the first sin, that fractured that relationship, um, and God was not able to dwell with them in that intimate way anymore, and they had to, they were, they had to leave the garden. And that was the, the fall and the curse, as it's called. Now, Adam and Eve did go on to uh, create a family and populate the earth as, uh, as they were told. And at this time, when, when the fall and the curse happened, God foretold or promised that someday a human would come who would restore that relation, relationship. And so that's something that all throughout the Bible, everything is looking towards is the human who's going to come to restore. Okay, so now we're moving on. Um, we got more people on the earth now. And um, in Genesis 12... Now God picks Abraham to build a relationship with Abraham, and he makes a promise to Abraham, a covenant, that Abraham was going to be the father of the Jewish nation. Okay? So I'm going to read a quick verse. You don't need to follow along. I'll just, I'll just read it. Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 to 4. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. So this is the, it's commonly referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. This is the start of that. So God made this promise to Abraham. He'd be the father of the Jewish nation, and the Jewish nation would be God's people. Okay? And what he promised came true. Abraham had a family, he had kids, he began, and the Jewish nation was born. And God dwelled with the Jewish nation, not like he did in the Garden of Eden. Uh, it was different. Uh, he dwelled in a tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, and that's how they interacted with him. And God helped them, and he provided for them, and, and that was, um, that's how things were going, right? Uh, now, in spite of all of this, in spite of how much God protected them, loved them, and took care of them, they didn't really hold up their end of the bargain. Uh, they went after other gods, they disobeyed, and they did not follow God. So now we're in, and I'm in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and as he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. 
as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And this went on for year after year after year of them following other gods and not holding up their end of the bargain to the covenant that God made with them. But in spite of that, God still held up his end of the bargain. He still loved them, and he still took care of them, and he still provided for them. In Psalm 106, verse 44, Nevertheless, God looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant, and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So God kept up his end of the bargain. But things did not seem to get any better. Things continued on in that fashion, and it got so bad that, now I'm at the end of the Old Testament, it got so bad that God himself had to come to earth as a man to show his people how to live, to show his people how to love God, and to show his people how to love their neighbor and love their enemies. Right? Now, this is, he came as a man, this is Jesus, and this is in fulfillment from Genesis 3, when God said a man would come to restore the relationship. And uh, Jesus was here on earth, and he was showing them how they ought to live. And even while he was here performing miracles and healing them, they still followed other gods, they did not believe, and it continued to go on the path that it was going. And it got so bad that the Jewish people handed Jesus over to the Jewish leaders, or the Pharisees. And the Pharisees then um, condemned him to death and gave him to the non-Jews, to the Romans, to be murdered. So now I'm in Matthew chapter 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on their way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus was murdered, and then three days later, he rose from the grave. And the, that power of God that came in that moment through his death and resurrection, that was what can restore our relationship with God. And that was what was foreshadowed back in the beginning of Genesis. And that's the power that it gives for uh, each of us uh, to now be part of God's family and to have the opportunity for, uh, to dwell with God and experience all the riches of his glory. And then after his resurrection, now we're in the book of Acts, after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit was sent. And the Holy Spirit was sent to, to indwell each of us. And, and God's, uh, his resurrection then ushered in an opening of God's family to Jews and non-Jews. So now it's not just the Jewish nation that God's here to have a relationship with. Now it's everyone, anyone. And this unique, um, very different, uh, exciting uh, change of plans or events is often referred to as the mystery. That's what Paul refers to it as in Ephesians, the mystery of the gospel. This is when we come to Paul and his conversion. And we're all very familiar with this story. I know Jonathan's talked about it a lot, but Paul was a, as we talked about, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Jewish leader. And he was so, his personality was so passionate that he wanted to protect what was important to the Jewish um, traditions, religions, and anything that was outside of that um, was, was a, the concept of Christianity was different. So he was trying to protect Judaism. And so he was murdering, torturing Christians. And so one day on the road, on the way to Damascus, to a city, to go after some other Christians, God intervened. 
And God opened his eye, or actually blinded him, but God helped him see that this was being, it was open to non-Jews as well. And then this is where Paul was uniquely commissioned to go be the ambassador to the non-Jews because he represents everything Jewish. He's the Pharisee of Pharisee, and he can share and explain it. And so that's what brings us to Paul writing his research paper of Ephesians to the non-Jews and to those churches. So that's my 30,000-foot flyover. <laughs> um, thanks for, follow, or for bearing with me, but it was, it was a really advantageous exercise for me to work through it. Uh, and I think it's important to kind of step through and see some of those highlights because I think that helps us to connect a lot of the dots of the beginning of Ephesians and what it means and where we're going with it. So then I'd like to, um, we just have a couple verses in Ephesians here. Um, I want to kind of get right into verse 14. This, like I said, this is really his summary statement of the first three chapters. And I think there's, there's four specific things he calls out um, in verses uh, 14, 15, and 16. There's four things that he calls out that, um, as he's summarizing, that are all through the first three chapters, and they're really all through the whole book, or the whole Bible for that matter. So we'll, we'll just start in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he's, first of all, he's praying. I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So of the four things he was trying to get across, family is the first thing. Every family. Um, this concept of family is all through Ephesians. So I, I, I took the time and counted. In Act 1, which is chapters 1 through 3, in Act 1, Paul references the concept of family 21 times. And so you think about um, all the sermons that Jonathan and Dave have preached so far in Ephesians, that God the Father sent his Son so that we can be part of the family. We are adopted as children. I mean, everything is using the symbol of family. And then if you think back to Jewish history, the concept of family is all through that as well. God the Father built a relationship with Abraham and told Abraham he was going to be a father of a Jewish nation. And to, for this to happen, Abraham had to have kids. He had to start a family. And then the Jewish nation, um, as things time went on, then when Christ or when Jesus came, Jesus came as a man, the son of God, but also through the lineage of David, through the lineage of Judah, through the lineage of Abraham, all part of the family. And in, in Jewish culture, family was everything and was crucially important. Now, if, if, we're, if, if I'm a non-Jew and I don't know any of this history, understand it, the fact that I'm now part of the family of God, I suppose that's comforting. It's nice. But if you don't understand what that's coming from or where that's stemming from, it doesn't mean as much. And now the concept that anyone can be part of the family of God. It's no longer an exclusive club. Now the family's opened to anyone, Jew or non-Jew. It's, it's not that he's building a new family. It's that he's building a new humanity. And that's the church. That's us, right? All right, so let's keep going. Um, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... The riches of his glory. So I think glory is the second thing he wants us to see here. 
uh, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, glory in some form or another is referenced 12 different times. And the concept of God's glory and how his glory is revered is all throughout the Old Testament. Think about um, the glory of God that was shown in the burning bush to Moses. And then think about when Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and came down and his face, sh- was, his face was glowing because it was reflecting God's glory. And then um, think about the temple and how they, ha- they made the temple so beautiful and glorious because that's where God dwelled. So it was full of jewels and gold and silver and diamonds. So revering the glory of God and its beauty was all part of Jewish history and Jewish heritage. And that was everything. And now we have access to experience all the riches of the glory of God because we are part of his family. And same thing if as a, as a Gentile or non-Jew, if, if you weren't aware of this and you weren't the concept of the temple and the stories of Moses weren't familiar to you, then the concept of God being glorious might be artistic at best, um, not, not quite as impactful. So, okay, so verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being. So power is the third thing. Power is referenced seven times in the first half of Ephesians. When you think about God's power, that's, that's everywhere in the Bible. It was through God's power that creation was created. It was through God's power that the flood came. And then through God's power that the Red Sea was split. And through God's power that Jesus was able to do all the miracles he did on earth. Whether it was healing the sick or whether it was driving out demons or whatever. The, there's, and all his miracles, there's just constant stories of God's display of power, and that's very familiar to a Jewish person. But to a non-Jew who's now a Christian, um, power might be, yeah, everybody, we all want to have power on our side, like that's a good thing. Um, but if you don't understand the whole past and the history of it, uh, you don't see how, how big of a deal it is. So then finally on the last one, Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So dwell is the fourth thing. And this one is, is, uh, is my favorite <laughs> um, because I think the concept of dwell uh, is really, really um, exciting or robust. Uh, the concept of dwelling is referenced 10 different times in the first half of Ephesians. And if you think about God dwelling, um, I tried to emphasize that as we were kind of doing our 30,000 foot flyover, but uh, God dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, and then he dwelled with the Jewish people through his presence in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And then when they made it to the promised land, he dwelled in the temple. Uh, and then now that's not needed anymore because of his death and resurrection. Now he dwells in us. And if you think about going back to the way a, a Jew would have experienced God's dwelling, it's completely central to everything. So as they were marching through the wilderness, God dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant, which had to be carried by four men, and usually was what led the procession of the march. And then when they got to their camp and set up the camp, the tabernacle was the first thing they set up. And it was set up in the center of camp. So it was geographically the center of the Jewish world. And then not only that, but for a Jewish person to actually interact with God through the tabernacle, you couldn't do it directly. You had to go through an intercessor, through a high priest. And both you and the high priest had to be ritually pure and clean 
and you have to have all your sins atoned for. And your sins get atoned for through sacrifices. And if you've ever read Leviticus, all the sacrifices and the cleanliness, sometimes that takes days or weeks to get to the point where you're ready to then interact with God in, through the high priest in the tabernacle. So not only is God's dwelling geographically central to their world, it also is central to their life. I mean, everything revolved around it. It, was, it took up all their time. So the fact that now, because Christ died as the last sacrifice, there doesn't need to be any more sacrifices, and there's no need for a temple or tabernacle anymore because now God dwells in us, that is earth-shattering to a Jewish person. How much time does that free up? And not only do they not have to do the sacrifices and be ritually pure, but now they don't, they don't even have to travel to the center of camp because God's dwelling inside their bodies. That's a huge deal. But for a non-Jew, if you don't know any of that, the concept of your God dwelling in you is actually probably kind of weird and doesn't mean as much. And I think those are the things that Paul is trying to get us to see. So let's finish up uh, verse 17. So the Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is it. He's, these, these four things that he's showing us is, is to help open their eyes to see that, hey, God's love is, yes, it's what you think it is, but it's so much more and it's so much bigger and you would never know it because you haven't experienced all that the Jewish um, nation experienced through the relationship with God. So it's, it's kind of like, this is a weird illustration, but this is the best thing I can come up with. Uh, it's kind of like a Syrian refugee trying to explain the concept of freedom and liberty to my son, Lucas. If you don't know Lucas, he is four and a half years old. He is a white male, and he lives in Brookfield, Wisconsin. So couldn't be any more different and separate from the experiences that a Syrian refugee has, has gone through. I think that's a lot of what Ephesians is. I think that's a lot of Paul trying to open the minds of non-Jews um, just to help enlighten, not enlighten, to help, to help show them how big the love of God is. So the best way for my son Lucas to understand what a Syrian refugee had to go through so he can grasp the concept of freedom and liberty the best way is probably for him to experience it, for him to experience uh, dictatorship and for him to experience uh, conflict and wars and torture and slavery and starvation. But I don't want him to do that. I don't want him to experience it. And frankly, I don't think anybody's asking him to experience it. The best way for him to experience it is to learn, to ask questions, to read a history book, to study, to ask the Syrian refugee questions, and to begin to slowly comprehend it. And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here in verse um, 18. Paul is, saying, Paul is praying that we may have strength to comprehend. Paul is not telling these churches 
these, non, these new non-Jewish, he's not telling them that they have to experience circumcision. He's not telling them that they have to experience uh, being ritually clean and doing sacrifices. He's not telling them any of that. He's not, they don't have to follow. They don't need to experience it. That's why Paul is here. That's why he's writing this, to help them to begin to understand it. Now, I'm very thankful that Paul is praying this because uh, if you've ever read the Old Testament, it's very hard to understand. <laughs> Leviticus is really challenging. And I'm learning, I think, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are even harder. <laughs> and that's why Paul, not only is he praying for our comprehension, but he's praying that we have strength to comprehend. Because comprehension is hard, but it's also tiring <laughs> because the Old Testament's big. And so Paul is praying that we have strength to comprehend because we need to know how big the love of God is. How's, what's the height, the length, the breadth, and the depth. It's all of it. It's so much bigger that way. Because, you see, if we don't, and we only ever view God's love through the non-Jewish eyes, all we're going to see is that I was a sinner and God died so I don't have to, and now I can go to heaven so I don't have to go to hell. And that's true, and that's good, and I couldn't be any more thankful that that is um, a, a, a portion of God's love, but God's love is so much bigger, and the more we understand it, it's, it's so much more uh, exciting um, and awesome, and it's, it's just so much bigger. And, and I think that's what Paul is trying to get us to see here is we are, we are part of a much bigger epic story and narrative. And knowing and loving and understanding the Old Testament is crucially important. So much so that Paul has to, is praying for it in his research paper that he wrote. So if, if you don't take the time to learn and understand it, and you just focus on things through non-Jewish eyes, it's kind of like, and if you've not seen this movie, I apologize, but it's kind of like, um, think of the movie, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy. It's kind of like saying, I'm a fan of The Lord of the Rings, but I've never seen the first movie, and I've never seen the second movie, and I've only seen the last 20 minutes of the third movie, or second half of the third movie, whatever it is. If that's all you saw, then your view of the Lord of the Rings is two guys were at the bottom of a volcano. They climbed to the top, they threw the ring in, and then they lived happily ever after. That's a cute little story. But if you don't see the rest of it, then you don't know how did those two guys get to the volcano? How long did it take them to get to the volcano? Who helped them to get to the volcano? What... And why were they going to the volcano? And who are these two guys? And what call, why were they picked to be the ones to do the quest to go to the volcano? And what was their life like before they started the quest? If you don't understand all of that, then it's just a cute little anecdotal story at the end. But if you do understand all of it, when you get to the end, it's enough to make grown men cry because they enjoy it so much. <laughs> and... And that's what a lot of this is like. If you, if you just focus on what you can see through non-Jewish eyes, you're missing the, how deep the Father's love is for us. It, it's kind of also like, I remember um, in the, growing up and going to uh, 
a Bible camp, vacation Bible school, or um, other things that our school might host, or church, or whatever, you know, things for kids to go to. And if you didn't have a Bible, maybe they would give you a Bible. And that was great. I think everybody should have a Bible, and I think we should give them away for free. Um, but I also remember occasionally going to, to uh, events where instead of giving you a Bible, they gave you a New Testament. And at the time, I thought, oh, great, it's so much smaller, <laughs> not as heavy, <laughs> easier to carry. But now looking back at it, it's kind of a sad thing that we give out just the New Testament. Because with just the New Testament, it's like just giving out the last 10 minutes of Lord of the Rings. You're missing the whole thing. You're missing how big God's love truly is for, you, for us. And I guess that's, that's what I think Paul um, is trying to do in this owner's manual portion of Ephesians. And this is really what God's been teaching me the past few years, is just to give me this much deeper uh, appreciation that I'm, I'm a very small part of a much bigger and longer legacy of what God is doing through uh, the earth and his creation of the people here and the Jewish people and this new church that he's created and where we're all going. So I just hope and pray that God continues to work in each of us to give us uh, excitement and enjoyment and uh, bravery to start to tackle the Old Testament um, and learn as much as we can from Paul. God, thank you so much for this time together to be able to, to look at Ephesians and to be able to look at what Paul is uh, showing us and trying to explain to us. And I just ask that, that, you would, that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in each of our lives, that you would give us the strength that we need to begin to comprehend to begin to comprehend what you wrote and what you gave to us in the Bible so that we can have a, a, a bigger picture of who you are and how deep your love truly is for us uh, and that we are just a small part uh, of the, the big epic legacy of what you are doing. And we are so incredibly grateful and awestruck um, by these things. So I just ask that you help us as we go forth. Um, give us strength, give us power, Give us understanding and comprehension. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.